listeners of the Social Transgressions podcast. We are here today with B to talk about diagnoses and being adults on the autism spectrum. Hello, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're totally going to keep that in because this is is such an autistic moment. It's like not knowing who's going to speak next. Yes. All right. So that was sort of a fun icebreaker, I guess you could call it. B, please introduce yourself by telling us if you prefer person first or identity first language and two to three of things that you're interested in. All right, well, um, person first or identity first is mainly a case of context. If I'm in a support group, I'm usually um, identity first. Normally I'm person first. And as to my interests, well, I love history, I love reading and I love cats. Awesome. Well, we here at Social Transgressions love cats. It's in a lot of our art. Very much so, yes. Now we have an outline, but I want you to know that please do not feel like you are limited to the outline. I want this to be fairly conversational too, but I'm gonna start with the first question that we have, which is, when did you suspect that you might be autistic? Well, autistic is kind of uh, a vague term because for the longest time, because the big difference between you and I is you were diagnosed very early and I was diagnosed fairly late in life because we were born in different times with different awarenesses of this kind of situation. So when I was growing up, as I got older, people kind of understood that there was something kind of wrong with me. Um, but I didn't necessarily fit the typical severely autistic mold of things. Um, I liked hugs just fine. There were some fabrics I didn't like, but it wasn't like an outright aversion to touch. I was never nonverbal. I, you know, got speech just fine, like most kids. Um, but at the same time, there were behaviors that were unexplainable. And so the result was I tended to get a lot of different diagnoses. And I know that I've gone to many therapists and we had different diagnoses, you know, ADD, ADHD, bipolar, and um, little eccentricities like I, what I did got worse later on as I became a teenager because I had meltdowns and no one could explain why. And, um, you know, so it was kind of like this big mystery until the word Asperger's came onto the scene and all of a sudden that's my new diagnosis. And I had gotten so many different diagnoses with little resolution that I was skeptical at the time. So it took a while for me to accept that. Mm-hmm. Now, just to clarify for our listeners, Asperger's was merged with autism in 2013 under the DSM-5. Asperger's no longer exists technically as its own diagnosis. A lot of people on the spectrum, though, will still say that they have Asperger's or refer to themselves as Aspies, kind of as an identity thing. Is that something that you identify with? Well, I never much liked the word Asperger's. I mean, plenty of people play, you know, make fun of the name online, as you well know. Yeah, Um, like that South Park episode. Oh my gosh, yes. Um, Um, as, like a lot of us like to prefer the term on the spectrum. If you want to know more, I'll unpack it for you. Because it's really hard to, to give a name to something like this because it affects everyone in different ways. It's not like there was, there was a, a gene switch that said, okay, you do this, this, and this, and all of a sudden you're autistic. It's very different. 
Um, so I try to like present myself, you know, as generally as possible, you know, with little disclosure if possible. Merging the two diagnoses has helped in that people tended to often think that, oh, the Aspies were the, the high functioning ones. They're the mm -hmm. ones that are most likely to do well and just sort of attributing some of that problematic functioning language. And yeah. now calling everybody autistic and saying that everyone's just on the spectrum, it doesn't make such a, a difference between the two. Yeah. But then I also see the argument for, you know, trying to find a community that shares more of your background and personal experience. Like I find that when I go to adult autistic groups, that a lot of them are self-diagnosed or diagnosed in adulthood. And obviously there's nothing wrong with that. Like mm -hmm. you can be a totally autistic person with that experience, but I find that my experience being in special education and having a lot of developmental delays really affected me and changed my outlook on a lot of things. And sometimes it's harder to find common ground mm -hmm. when I'm in groups with people who have been diagnosed later. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, and, and I think maybe it's a generational thing too, um, because I find, you know, obvi obviously we had some older people in our support group who, you know, lived their entire lives without a diagnosis until much later in their life. Um, and I mean, in some ways I can also empathize as well this knowledge that something was wrong, that something was different or special about you. Um, it's just uh, in a case of which is more obvious. I hear that in men sometimes uh, the, the behaviors are not as, you know, it's not as obvious because they're considered to be okay to be standoffish and, you know, prefer to eat the same meal every day or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of influence by gender politics and how autism is diagnosed and how it's perceived. So I wanted to touch on how you said when you were growing up, you were diagnosed with a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And what do you remember doing as a kid to cope with your undiagnosed autism? Well, um, like Linus, I had a favorite blankie. And that, and that blankie does not exist anymore because I took it apart. Um, I, have, I have a history of um, kind of picking at my clothing and taking it apart. Um, that's kind of, a, it was an early fidget for me, you might say. Um, and so that came up and usually that was an example of like high activity or high anxiety, just wanting to express myself. Um, I learned to draw fairly early on and uh, I would doodle a lot. I would doodle on everything. Um, you know, often to the point of teachers not really appreciating my art. Um, and I mean, I was a very um, internal child. I was very much an introvert. If you put me in a corner with a couple of books, I was usually fine, which is often why I wasn't diagnosed that early because people associate the behavior with being, with behaving, you know, with being a good girl. Um, and so, so, yeah, I would say, you know, losing myself in infection and things like that, kind of retreating from the world as my way of handling all of the crazy sounds and the strange behaviors. It wasn't until I started growing up and you were kind of required to be more social, to express yourself socially, that things started coming, started becoming difficult for me. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, I had a lot of behavior issues, which I know there's probably a better way to describe it rather than behavior issues. Mm -hmm. I guess if I were to rephrase that, I'd say they were stemming from sensory issues and things that didn't make sense to me, but I didn't Mm -hmm. know how else to express it. And there were a lot of times that having an IEP just saved my butt because of the (laughs) protections put in place for students with disabilities. You know, I, I remember getting to invoke the IEP and my mom (laughs) storming down to the school to yell at everyone and then having all the teachers and staff just be quaking in their boots. Oh my gosh. Fun times. Your mom was scary. I'm really glad that I had those legal protections. I know that there's a lot of problems that come with special education And I don't think too fondly of my time there, but I am glad that I had that. And I can imagine how difficult it must be for undiagnosed kids who don't have those legal protections. Yeah, I was kind of like, you know, when it came to categorizing me, like I was fairly well gifted in in, um, academics early on. I was in the Excel program for a bit. Um, But at the same time, it's like I was good, you know, with academic stuff, but socially I was very, very much behind. And so what they did was they had this special other class that I would go to where I was more or less me and a couple other students that had behavior problems and just wanted to chill out and just do our own thing. And in some ways that helped, but at the same time, it also made me more other um, because no one knew how to handle me, essentially. They didn't, um, I didn't get the help I needed until much later in my life. and thankfully I got it, but it left a lot of trauma behind not getting that required guidance and that required patience even to understand what I was going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> so when you were in childhood, you received all these diagnoses and you felt that some of them may not necessarily apply to you so much. You know, kind of just felt like a lot of people were trying to categorize you and mm-hmm. tell you who you were. That's exactly right. And um, later on, I wanted an official diagnosis later on, you know, like with the, you know, a professional I had never met before because I'd been going through a lot of different programs and things like that. So once I became of age um, and I thought and I talked about it with my dad and thank goodness for my dad because he's a rock for me. Um, you know, I decided I'm going to get an official diagnosis. This person's not going to know me. It's not going to know my parents. And we'll finally put this to bed. Because once I put it to bed, then I can move on from there. And so um, that's how I got the official diagnosis, along with a bit of ADHD, which I do have. Um, and that kind of, it made it clear. Because this is a person who did not know me, who had never met me before. And I could kind of start anew in a way. I don't mm-hmm. know if it makes much sense that way, but that's how it felt for me. Yeah, I want to delve a bit deeper into the process of getting your diagnosis. So how did you make that appointment? Because I wouldn't know I was diagnosed in childhood. So this is all really (laughs) new territory for me. Did you just call somebody up? Okay, not call, book an online appointment because we're autistic. We do not like (laughs) the phone. And did you just say, I think I'm autistic. I want to be sure. 
Well, I didn't say it like that. Um, I, I mean, I think my dad helped arrange it at the time because I was still living with him. And uh, we talked and was just like, you know what? This girl has some has some um, mental health issues. We want to get a diagnosis. We're going to try to start with a clean slate, no, make no assumptions. And it involved, I think it was through Columbia River Mental Health was how I got the diagnosis through. So I don't think I had previous experience with that group. And they brought me in. They had a counselor speak with me briefly. They had me do a test. And they were like, yeah, this looks like what you are, essentially. <laughs> And I'm just like, cool, you know, now we can, we can start working with that because I am on medication. Um, and for the longest time, I had issue with that because when I was a teenager and all angsty, it was like, you want someone medicated, you don't want me, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but medication does help me in my case, I, um, it helps me balance, it's like balancing the boat kind of, you know, you're a little less high strong, a little less um, uncontrolled, and it does help a lot in my experience. Mm -hmm. Now, I want you to mentally go back to that moment where you were told that you had this diagnosis. Was it a feeling of epiphany for you or was it more like, okay, yeah, cool, whatever, let's move on to the next thing? Um, well, I wouldn't put it like that exactly, but um, it did inspire me because I had recommended different books by people on the spectrum, notably Temple Grandin. And uh, looking through her, you know, her books and her relations of her own experiences. And now that I have it official, um, I could kind of say, yes, this does, I think this does apply to me because, you know, for, for so long I was in doubt. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that I just moved on from that. I think it's, it was the first step. Um, I have been in therapy since then, you know, I go there pretty regularly for help with anger issues. One of the most important things that happened after that diagnosis was I got a life coach. And this was a person who would visit me. It, it wasn't like necessarily for therapy, but she taught me life skills and she helped me gain a sense of self that was more than my disability. And um, I mean, my dad believes that she saved my life in a way, because she helped me because I had these severe anger issues. I had, la I lashed out a lot. I had meltdowns. And thanks to her constant regular influence, I think it did help me become a better person over time. And I can thank the di my diagnosis for that because she used to work for Columbia River Mental Health. Columbia River Mental Health, sorry. There we go. Um, so that's how I found her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard that having a life coach or some kind of counselor or mentor can be really helpful. I'm kind of looking for one for myself, but I don't know. I just, I feel kind of iffy about the power dynamics of mm -hmm. going to someone who is neurotypical and trying to sort through my problems with them. Like, I understand that it can be helpful to get a different perspective or a different take on things but at the same time I feel like I might be more comfortable with someone else who is autistic and for me there's just not really any options that I've discovered yet so yeah, did I you experience you. any kind of discomfort with this person that you called your life coach just yes I will tell you yes um <laughs> She was, you know, I think at one point I told her, and, the, and we knew each other for years at this point, that I, I love you and I kind of hate you too. And she's just like, that's normal. So um, 
I can't, I'm sad that I can't recommend her to you because she has passed away, sadly. She, uh, she had ovarian cancer. She was very dear to me. Um, but she was kind of a very mothering type. And essentially that's who she was. She was mothering me in a way that I needed to be mothered and since, you know, accommodating for how I saw the world, but it's at the same time kind of giving me limits on what I could do. Um, so I agree, it can be, it, it's a crapshoot at times trying to figure out who is a good match for you. And um, honestly, I don't know where to go exactly. That might be another resource we look into is, you know, to find a good life coach because it's a commitment and it has to be a two-way street. Both people have to be agreeing to um, like each other or hate each other and still come back to see each other. Um, mm -hmm. So that was, it was a, it, it may not be the, the solution for everyone. I will say that. And I think especially with my history of being in special education and having a lot of neurotypical mentors and teachers just assigned to me, uh, that makes me feel less comfortable going to neurotypical people for assistance with issues that could be potentially helped by a life coach. Yeah. So I definitely think that there's a big difference in sort of our upbringings there. And now I want you to sort of think about your life up until the point of diagnosis. And I want to ask you, what do you wish you could have had help with earlier if people knew that you were autistic? Well, I think that um, it would have been because because what my parents did, they had a decent amount of money. They weren't terribly poor, so they could afford to send me to different specialists, different um, kind of, you know, special help. If they had known, if they had a good idea about what to expect with me, I think that there would have been more structure to my life. I think they would have been able to work with that a bit better because part of my frustration at times was that um, I wasn't getting the attention because I needed extra attention, I needed extra care. Um, and once they knew where to direct that attention, I think it would have been a lot smoother. But at the same time, it could be like you, where you felt where you might feel a part of the system that you're kind of introduced to. Um, so <laughs> it's not necessarily a happy ending that's guaranteed with this early intervention. Um, but at the same time, it could have prevented a lot of a lot of trauma in, in theory. Um, I try not to look back and wish the past were different, although I do a lot in reality. Mm -hmm. um, but for what I got in life and how people handled it, I came out pretty good. And I'm very grateful for that. I think you came out pretty good too. Bea. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think that being autistic is a real double-edged sword. And yes. if you don't know what that metaphor means, I can sort of go into detail and I'll say that, you know, if you do get a lot of early intervention services and special education and you have a lot of people around you supporting you, sort of putting you into different boxes and programs based on your diagnosis, mm -hmm. then the feeling of personhood can kind of get lost in there. Yeah. I don't want to go too deep into it, but a lot of people with autism, they don't speak too highly of their childhoods. And on the other hand, going undiagnosed presents with a lot of problems of its own. You can have a lot of things that are missed. You can feel like you're not getting the attention that you need to be successful. 
And for a long time, I was really jealous of people who were able to go through their entire childhood and young adulthood without being diagnosed, just mm -hmm. because I had the former experience of feeling like I had so many people around me who were watching me all the time and trying yeah. to change me. Yeah, I remember one common issue I had when I was growing up because sometimes my parents would like throw their hands in the air and they would try to talk to me and say, hey, what would help you? What do you think would help you? Because they had no one else to turn to. They, Their diagnoses had failed in a sense. And so like, can you explain what can I do to make your life better? And in some ways that was kind of it was kind of troubling because I don't know what I'm dealing with. I don't know why I'm upset or why I'm melting down so often. And laying it on me, it was, it was not the answer to put it lightly. I was not in a state where I could have answered that question. Now that I'm older and I look back on the past, I can say that, yes, this was a factor in how, I, how often I melted down. Um, hindsight's 2020, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I mean, I'm very lucky. I am lucky to have um, an amazing parent. I'm lucky to have a good support system. And I'm grateful that the community has more support groups than it did back in the heyday. I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, me too. And I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your experiences and being very conversational with me. I'm going to have to look up on the internet if the word crapshoot is considered. Oh, sorry. I was because this podcast <laughs> is labeled as clean on all of the streaming platforms. I'm but... referring to gambling. I'm referring okay, to the game of craps okay. and gambling, if yeah. that helps. <laughs> there you go. You know, I, I do want this podcast to be authentic. And if I do find out that I have to change the rating, you know, That's it'll be fine. for editing. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be encouraging people to censor themselves when they're talking about their personal experiences. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you to my listeners for listening. I will have a new episode next week. And hopefully I will see you then. All right. Thank you for having me.